Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring creative journeys. I'm your host, David Gidali. This is episode 14. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast before, uh, welcome. I highly recommend looking uh, at our website, postpostpodcast.com, sorry, thepostpostpodcast.com, um, and check out our previous uh, episode. We have 13 so far. We have uh, guests that include people like Wes Ball, the director of The Maze Runner, Joe Sander, and uh, Kevin Adams, who directed uh, Netflix movie Next Gen. We have uh, Ethan Shaftel, a VR director. We have uh, people like uh, Aaron Nee, who's currently writing and directing Masters of the Universe. Uh, so there's quite a bit to listen to. Uh, I'm very happy with those episodes. So the podcast is generally, for those of you who haven't listened to any episodes before, uh, it's about uh, creatives who found and carved for themselves uh, unique uh, journeys Um in their profession, starting from most of them started from post production, things like uh, editing or uh, visual effects, and um, found ways to to fulfill their initial dreams. Which for many, it's been being film directors. Um, for others, it's been other things. I think what every every one of uh, my guests have in common is that they're passionate about what they're doing and they're finding unique and creative ways to keep doing, keep at it and, uh, and making what they love their profession. And this episode's guest is, uh, is no different. It's John Robson. He's a director, uh, motion designer. He's LA based. He directed commercials for Nike, Xbox, uh, and other brands. Uh, he's also, um, directing a bunch of original work. So he has uh, animated shorts, he has live action shorts. And if you go to the, to his website, johnrobson.tv, you'll see it. You'll see uh, a big number and a big variety of original work and commissioned work. And uh, just by looking at his things, I think um, I personally get inspired by just the variety. And, uh, and what I see in his work also is that he's like highly creative, inventive, inquisitive. Um, a lot of his work, I think, starts out as technical exploration and then ends up being becoming something with a message and something that has, uh, you know, has has something to to contribute beyond just being a uh, um, a technical exploration project. For instance, the very last piece that he uploaded to his Vimeo page is called Quality Time, and it was staff-picked, and it's raking in views by the hundreds of thousands right now. Um, what started out as an evolution of a previous kind of series of motion capture and uh, crowd simulation tests has evolved, and his latest piece uh, is basically more of a narrative or kind of a a uh, social commentary of sorts about uh, our society and how people are connected and jacked into their cell phones and uh, and that how that results in a disconnection between people in the real world. That's why it's called quality time because we don't really have much of that anymore. Um, and uh, it's uh, the perfect synergy between both his passion for storytelling and his curiosity and desire to keep learning and become better at what he does. We didn't talk about that because that piece came after we recorded this episode. 
but I think that uh, it's sort of a natural progression of everything else that we have discussed. And, and we clearly, you know, there's a lot in this episode about how we came about to start doing these shorts. Um, we talked about uh, his uh, humble beginnings in uh, analog filmmaking and his experience with, uh, with, the, with the film medium, which is no longer used as much, unfortunately, uh, and how we missed that, those days of uh, kind of feeling the film in our hands and, and using uh, editing like bays, like uh, the movieola and, uh, um, and how he was first introduced to, to digital, to, um, you know, computer-based uh, nonlinear editing tools. And um, we also talked about the AV club that he was part of when he was working for Blind, uh, which was kind of an effort by the founder of Blind to uh, keep motivating his artists to be creative and to create new things. And uh, by having this group that uh, meets up once a while, uh, it helped give these artists a deadline to work towards and it encouraged them to be creative and to come up with original personal work, uh, which, uh, which kind of started a momentum, I believe, in, in John and, and encouraged him to be more proactive and, and taught him that um, when you start working on something, you become kind of a center of gravity for other people who want to become also creative and want to also be inspired to do their own original things. So there's definitely a lot to learn from that. Um, and finally, I really like the fact, if you look at his website, johnrobson.tv, or his uh, company's website, latelunch.tv, uh, you'll see that beyond uh, his uh, projects and uh, the results, there's also a lot of content that uh, breaks down the making of and uh, shows the process and the different uh, techniques uh, that he used. And, um, and it I, I like watching those things personally. I find them inspiring, but it also shows about, you know, it also tells you how he enjoys and feels proud of, of the craft itself and, and what led to, let him, and the journey, basically, the, the creative journey that he went through. And he wants to share that, which I find very generous and, uh, and, and shows a lot of passion for the craft. Um, that's it. I think, um, I'll just let the episode roll and uh, we'll dive right into it. It's a great episode, long as the other ones, uh, but that's how it is. Uh, there's a lot to talk about and uh, we are very passionate about what we do. Uh, so I hope it I hope it kind of comes through and you enjoy it. Um, last, just a reminder, we do have a Facebook page and an Instagram page um, and a Twitter account as well. So... Yeah, don't hesitate to to comment and uh, and leave your notes, uh, give suggestions, things like that. We always, I always like to hear what you guys think. Um, and without further ado, uh, I give you episode fourteen with John Robson of the Post Post Podcast. So how do you usually like, uh, 
introduce yourself? I know it's probably tricky because, you know, someone who's so curious and does so many things, you know, it's hard to just uh, put a frame around yourself or something, but how, if you had to. Usually the way I introduce myself is starting off just by saying uh, my name, obviously, John Robson. Um, I am a director and motion designer. been working in the uh, post-production industry for about 15 years now. Um, I could give a little bit of background and context to sort of my career and how it all started, if that's a good place to sort of jump off with. Um, if you want to, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm on IMDb, so I already see that you're, you know, you've done main titles from some TV series and you've done, uh, am I right? Or, uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, but I'll, I'll let you take the lead, like, you know, come on, come like give, give us, uh, give us your, your intro. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I started out, I'm a film school nerd. So, um, Unlike a lot of my colleagues who I work with who went to art school, I, uh, I went to uh, UC Santa Barbara and got my undergrad in film studies. Um, I really wanted to be a director of photography at the time. Um, that was sort of my main passion. So in school, I, I got you know, pretty big into the sort of the technical side of things um, with, uh, with lighting and, and just uh, camera work. And this is back in the you know, around the turn of the, the millennium. So 1999, 2000, when I was in school, um, at that time we were still shooting on film and oh, wow. are you talking yeah. about, uh, like graduate school or, or, uh, no, this is just undergraduate undergrad. Okay. Yeah. So digital, uh, digital cameras had been around just for a few years, but, um, and I think we had like one in the department, but they were still like not very good quality. You know, they were like, um, 480p and, uh, 30 frames per second. So like oh, nothing, yeah, yeah. nothing you shot from it looked good at all. I think the, the best camera they had was this thing called it. It was a Canon XL one, which is this huge, like, like white shoulder mounted camera that looked really cool, but <laughs> the, the quality was terrible. They have um, a lot of buttons. And yeah, exactly. It was like really confusing to use. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, the reason why I bring up the, the, the film, the film background is it, it, it's sort of what I f- call like my humble beginning. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was a, it was a lot more difficult medium to work with. You know, it was very expensive. You had less opportunity to actually shoot. And then, you know, you had to pay for developing. And uh, we had to edit by hand, uh, cutting film and splice, use, splicing uh, it together. Did you use the Moviola or something like that? Or yeah, the, yeah, the, we used the Moviola and a Steenbeck. And uh, actually, someone taught me um, a trick with the Moviola because, um, you know, when you shoot a bunch of film, you get it back in, you know, these big reels and you have yeah. to separate and, and like tag and identify or label all your cuts. Um, so someone taught me you could like tape the, to the side of the movie. There was kind of like, it wasn't a gear, but it was sort of like a, like a, like a metal cylinder that would spin with it. And you yeah. could, you could like really quickly wind it up. Otherwise you'd just be doing it, uh, you know, by hand. Oh. So I spent like a whole night just literally like getting, getting my footage back, driving, <laughs> driving a hundred miles from Burbank to Santa Barbara to go into the editing room and just sit there like, um, like cutting and hanging all my clips and then rolling them up until someone taught me that. Uh, so, so there was like, <clears throat> there was a lot of really annoying stuff, but the, the, the cool thing about it was, you know, I learned how to use a, um, you know, light meter to, to light my shots. And I got really technical with like focus and depth of field. Everything was measurements. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're a pilot or something like you trust all your, your, your gauges and your equipment, you know? Right. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so it was the same kind of thing. I mean, I would, I would think and plan every, which way before a shoot, because I only had like, you know, a hundred feet of film it was like two minutes and, uh, you know, only had access to the camera for like a few hours of the day. So, um, 
it was it was a really fascinating process and you shoot all this stuff and you don't know if if you know any of the footage actually made it through or if it looks good or if it's in focus and you find out like you know a week later after you process it um so it's just a really like like arduous process to go through but what i found is it helped me um be pickier when i actually work in digital because you know now you can shoot as much you know footage as you want as much you know storage as you have um back then it was kind of more of a more of a necessity than a, than a choice. I mean, I shot my thesis film in 35 millimeter, I want to say six, seven or no, actually, yeah, something like seven years ago. Uh, by then, you know, shooting on film was really kind of a luxury. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, most, most, uh, productions went digital because it was just cheaper and, and easier and shooting on film was kind of like, okay, I'm going to decide that I'm going to be very limiting like limiting, limiting myself to, you know, to only shooting, uh, X amount of, of real. And we were actually so safe. We ended up with, with a lot of spare, you know, film at the end of the day, which is kind of, uh, frustrating because like, you know, this film, I mean, it ended up looking so great, you know, and, and everything I was like, Oh, I wish I just had something, you know, I can now sh- go out and shoot, you know, with, with the spare, uh, film. I ended up just giving it to my cinematographer. I, I'm not sure if he used it for anything or not, but, um, but it's like gold and you really appreciate it at the end of the day, you know, it comes out because you're like, okay, that's, you know, we had one shot to do that. There's no going back or, and, and there's no way to actually know while you're shooting, how is it going to end up looking until you, until you develop it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we shot a whole short film recently just on short ends, um, you know, and just kind of random uh, rolls of film that we were able to get a hold of. Um, and it was actually, it was last summer, it was um, a, a buddy of mine who, who's the DP on, on most of my films. He bought a, a Super 16. I forget exactly what it was. It was an Aerie, but it was one of these cameras that we would have killed for in college. Um, and now it's it's not necessarily obsolete, but, you know, it's a little more uh, um, right. easier to get your hands on it. Um, however, the you know, the film and the processing was really expensive compared to what it used to be. Um, but it was it's, just... Yeah, because it's <clears> a lot more... It's a lot more like uh rare that people do it so yeah exactly so i mean you know we when we ran out of footage that was that was it we were <laughs> we were done for the shoot um and we just worked with what we had which is really cool but it's funny because you know like you you, you look at the um uh at the the telecine and there's there's all kinds of noise and grain and it's one of those things it's like nowadays you either strive to get rid of all the noise or right. or add it back exactly you, know, you want like that control it, exactly fake yeah it. But it's kind of beautiful just seeing like that, you know, the natural like noise and grain of the film. You have no real control over it. Yeah, there's something, yeah, just so beautiful and and inspiring in that and like kind of saying, well, you know, this is how it is. It's like nowadays when you shoot digital, um, you, because you have the ability to, to be 100% like, you know, sharp and no artifacts and no like, you know, bad, you know, negative surprises or anything like that. Um, people kind of are, are reluctant to to damage it. You know, they're like, oh, let's keep it pristine. Let's keep it, you know, sharp and stuff. And there's this kind of, you know, if, if suddenly there is somehow uh, some kind of, a, you know, error or anything like that, people are immediately like, oh, no, we got to fix this. You know, can you do this? Can you do that? But like, you know, uh, you know, I think I think that kind of uh, ad- attitude that it's just like that's how it is. That's how it came out. That's the nature of the of the format and, and the material. And, and I think that. I miss that in, in a lot of films, you know, that kind of sometimes the gate, the film in the gate is not a hundred percent, you know, uh, tight and it's kind of, yeah. it, it has this little bit of a jitter and stuff. And I, 
I noticed that I'm missing it. Like some, you know, there's something that, that we kind of uh, forgot in, in the last few years when we got to digital that it's kind of magic. It's funny to, um, it's funny to think about, like, if you go back to around like the year 1999, 2000, um, before that, almost no films were like went through a digital intermediate. So all right. the, all the, you know, color correction, all the fixing of like exposure that was just done in, in a, a post process where they could like push it or pull it like a stop or two. And, you know, you could do a little bit with color. And right. you, if you go back and you see a movie that hasn't been remastered, you wonder why everything looks like a funny color, for example. And it just has to do with like, you know, either a mistake or, you know, something they couldn't reverse. Um, right. But I remember in film school, you know, this, <clears throat> when I was in school, it was it was when uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou came out and Amelie. And these were like big films where they, you know, they really, uh, you know, took uh, DI to the next level. They were doing all kinds of like really extreme color correction. Yeah. And, you know, being able to like limit and mat and do like masks and things like that, you know, that this was all, this was all new at the time. So it was right. kind of, it was kind of an exciting time to be in school because, you know, a lot of these things that we, we sort of take for granted now in the post, the post world <coughs> were sort of, you know, coming to light at the same time. So it was, it was, it was interesting because, you know, people who were a few years before me, didn't use these you know these tools they didn't exist you know right um and people who were a few years behind kind of already you know were aware and you know it's just part of part of like uh you know their their toolkit yeah i mean i remember the time where dslrs came i think it was a bit later a bit like around 2005 2000 you know yeah around 2004 2005 where dslrs <laughs> uh started shooting you know hd uh videos and uh, especially in film school where all you had is either, you know, a very big and heavy camera that shoots something like HD and, you know, obviously the film cameras that you might be able to use, but it was kind of the end of the end of the road for film in, at least in, you know, in film schools. Um, and then those DSLRs came with, you know, with really high end lenses suddenly that you could do a lot of cool things with. And, you know, that was kind of a, but that was just an example of how, you know, that transformation was happening in real time. You could see like from year to year how, you know, the tools are, are changing drastically and the processes are changing. And, you know, <laughs> students suddenly started coming out with films that looked a lot better than what they were able to do just, you know, half a year, a year ago, you know, beforehand. And um, that was really, but it's funny how like, you know, you get used to those things so quickly. Uh, I remember when I, uh, at some point I, I, I got hold of a, of a film camera, like a stills film camera. And I had this kind of, even though I, I remember using film cameras all the time when I was, you know, a younger, you know, I think it was probably in grade school or even high school where you would still have, you know, you'd still shoot stills with like a film camera because that was just how everybody did it back then. There was no uh, cameras yet. Uh, then going back to it, I, I, I remember having this sense of like, this kind of uh doubt about is is this really gonna work like is it really gonna like is is the film really gonna burn so quickly like it at like a split of a second how is this even possible you know like i remember just you know snapping photos and like kind of having this doubt in me it's like that's not gonna happen i mean it, it's there's no possibility this, you know the satellite is gonna uh, or you know the 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 film plane is gonna burn so quickly and it's gonna work and then obviously shooting short with film is like you know doing that 24 frames per second it's i just remember being very impressed by it it's like oh that actually works this medium 
And it's technology that's been around for over a hundred years that still works great. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of the amazing, you know, part of the like kind of inspiring thing about film that doesn't exist in digital is that uh, just from the, from the, from the, from the mere conceptual idea that every frame in a reel is like its own thing. It's like its own physical plane that gets, you know, imprinted with an image. Whereas when you shoot digital, it's just, it's one, you know, uh, one grid of, of, uh, photoreceptors, right. Um, which, uh, which keeps being reused all the time, you know? So even just the concept of like, you know, in film, it's like everyone is, a, every, frame, every frame is a fresh thing that, you know, has been waiting to be, you know, uh, engraved with light, essentially. Uh, There's no dead pixels. Yeah, no dead pixels, exactly. Like, you know, because everyone is fresh. And uh, there's something very, I don't know, like artistic and inspiring about that uh, that I find. So, I mean, how do you think that the, uh, that experience that you had starting with film, how did that affect your, you know, your, your kind of evolution as a creator and, you know, what happened then after you finished, uh, after you graduated? Well, it's funny because, um, I had this, this short film that I was working on. It was, it was sort of, um, I think it might've been my junior year, but it was kind of like the main project of the year. And, um, I had to do. I had a ton of sound ideas that needed to be done. And at that time there, there was basically, there was an old guy in the sound department who you would go to and you would, you would look through a book, you would listen to sounds and you would make requests and he would give you these little magnetic strips of, of, um, of like, you know, audio, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the format is, but basically it was something you would splice together to have an audio track. And, uh, I gave him a list with like five pages, all full of, of, um, different sound effects and he just kind of looked at it and paused and he said go over to this office uh you know tell them you know me and and then you know they'll they'll take from there i didn't know what it was what what it was was um it was a media 100 editing lab and they had these you know these these really like um simple sort of edit edit base and um they basically taught me how to edit wired well, i had already edited everything um like a work print on um on a scene back but i was right. able to sort of digitize it and then um and then i think i shot it like on a shadow box or something something really cheap it's just like have like a, a digital version of the of the um the film and uh and then I, I learned how to edit audio you know through there and that sort of opened my my eyes to the the idea of post-production and i found out that there there was this this mac lab at the school <clears throat> they weren't really telling too many people about it. And maybe it was because it was new or maybe because they just didn't want to flood it with a bunch of students, but they had final cut pro workstations. Yeah. It was like final cut two or something. Um, and these were on like the, um, like Mac G fours. I think they were, they were like blue. They were kind of like just after like the first iMac, uh, Uh, era, you know, that were like kind of semi translucent (laughs) or something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Um, and you know, I went up there and I was smitten, um, it was, it was pretty amazing seeing what, what they could handle. Um, so then I, you know, I, I got into it, uh, pretty heavy for like the next film. I did a bunch of like, um, like green screen and, and just like, like sort of pushing, um, the technical limits of what I could do because it was a new medium to me. And until this point I was just cutting by hand. Right. Uh, so it, it opened up a whole world. And then from there I learned about, you know, um, after effects and Photoshop and started sort of 
teaching myself a little bit about, about how to do like, you know, main titles and transitions and stuff for my films. And did you already have like access to the internet and tutorials and things like that? Or were you mostly kind of self-taught or just kind of, there was not, there was nothing on the internet They they, they had uh, Adobe made classroom in a book and, and then a little later down the line, um, I found uh, this book by, I think it was Chris and Trish Meyer. It was, um, I forget what it's called. I think it's, it's like compositing and after effects or something, but it's basically like the Bible, at least at that time for yeah. after effects. It had every single effect that, that existed. It explained how to do it. And I just sat there, you know, <clears throat> at late at night going through one by one to make sure I understood it, you know, <laughs> even just the concepts like alphas and displacement, things like that. Like, you know, I, I was, I was so in love with the, with the process that I ended up, you know, buying one of those, those Macs and getting the software and everything. And I just had like, you know, um, had a setup at home. That yeah, that's so romantic. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> Do you think that the fact that it was kind of not so readily available, all those tutorials and, and, and like it kind of required some extra, you know, extra digging through, or it was almost kind of like this, uh, you know, uh, outside of your reach type, you know, knowledge kind of in, uh, inspire you to, to dig even deeper into it? Like, do you think maybe nowadays if, if it was so available and everyone was doing it, uh, it would be less kind of intriguing? I mean, I, I think so. The, the, you know, at that time, the, you know, the generation before me, those who edited, they came from film or they edited on Avid. And, you know, Avid was this hardware accelerated editor that, you know, you'd see at edit editorial houses, but like yeah. you had no access to it as, as an artist. Right. Um, and you know, it's funny cause my, my mom had like, you know, family friends or something who had a kid who, who was, you know, a few years older working in the industry. She's like, Oh, call him. He's, he knows you're going to call, you know, he'll tell you all about the film industry. And I was like, I don't know, just do it, do it. He'll, he's really nice. So I call and the guy was a you know, total jerk. And yeah. And it, it, it was this kind of this, this, this experience I had over and over again, as I oh. talked to people in the industry, as they were like, oh, get out, you know, don't, don't, don't waste your time. You know, it's, it sucks. Uh, oh. You know, the hours are bad. There, like no, there was no, there's no like positive motivation to learn. Um, and I think part of it too is, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of people didn't really know what was next. Um, oh yeah. As, as, as we'll segue into, in, you know, the sort of like the motion graphics world, you know, a lot of that was was like very different and sort of evolving as a process. So it was hard to really, you know, um, to find the right person as a mentor. And at my school, you know, it was a, it was a film centric school. So there weren't really, there wasn't talk about motion graphics. I didn't know what it was. And, you know, at, at art schools you know, where, where they're, you know, heavy on design and, and, um, and, you know, like history and typography, I didn't learn any of that. Um, right. so when I got out of school, um, it was pretty scary. Which you know, school the, you go, uh, did you go to, by the way? Uh, Santa, you UC say? Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah. You, are you from yeah. Santa Barbara originally? or Originally, but I, I spent most of my life in Camarillo, which is sort of halfway between here and Santa Barbara. Gotcha. It's famous for the outlet malls. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, I mean, I stayed pretty close to home. Um, so, w when I got out of school, you know, I was really interested still in cinematography and I was trying to get into production. And I, I, I was able to, to get in on some, you know, commercial jobs as uh, a non-union camera loader, um, okay. which was, you know, a really stressful job because basically your responsible, your responsibility lies in loading and unloading these cameras. And if you expose you right, know, you any could, of that, you could render like an entire half day of uh, shoot to, you know, 
instantly ruin a shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would practice at night. I would take home like a a magazine, different, different camera magazines and just with my hands in one of those tents, just practice over and over again, watching TV. So it became second nature to, to load and unload the cameras. Um, so, so I ended up doing this for, you know, off and on throughout a year. I, I sort of actually ended up filling in a lot of work at the, um, at that same editing lab where I, uh, first found the computers, uh, <laughs> you know, first been introduced to final cut. So right. I was still learning a lot there and I was actually teaching uh, people at the school. So that was, that was a great resource for me. Um, but as I was working as a, as a camera loader and a, you know, an, an, an AC, um, I, it was, it was a very demanding job, you know, it's 12 hours a day minimum. And I was treated very poorly. Again, it was this sort of like this weird hazing ritual with, you know, these, like the, the DP and the, the first AC, uh, these guys who had been in the industry for a while, they're just really mean and really cruel. Um, so I got punished a lot. I got treated badly. It was just like a, an awful experience. And I knew that I had to pay these dues for probably like 10 years or so before I would actually, you know, even yeah. be close to being a DP. And it just wasn't, it wasn't right for me. Um, and at the same time I was learning more and more, uh, after effects and Photoshop and illustrator just, um, just on my own. Um, and after doing a few PA jobs here and there on different TV shows, um, someone, I, or I actually came across, um, a producer who was between jobs and, and she had worked in this, you know, motion graphics industry at this, this company called Montgomery Cobb later to be Montgomery company, mm-hmm. Montgomery and company. Um, and they, they were a main title shop. They'd done a bunch of cool stuff. They'd done like uh, the main title for 24 and, oh, okay. um, uh, enterprise, which was one of the star star Trek, uh, uh, series. Right. Um, and you know, <clears throat> at this time, this is about 2003. Um, this was like the, the first like big era for main titles. I know now like they're pretty big with like Netflix and HBO shows and companies right. like El- elastic sort of dominate the industry with that. But back then it was, you know, it was digital kitchen did six feet under, um, and you know, everybody was trying to, to compete with that. Right. Um, so what happened was this producer really, really liked me and she saw my potential and just the, the, the fact that I was going out of my way to learn all this stuff, um, after hours that she was able to sort of get me in on a job when there was a, you know, someone had either left or they needed help and, you know, they didn't have very much money. How did she know you? Like the, where, where did she see you? you know, do the after hour work. And- so I had, um, I had, I had basically, I found this, this, um, it might've been Craigslist ad for an editor. And <laughs> it, it was this, it was this company that, um, that was in uh, Torrance. They did like kids sports videos where, where they basically, they, 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 okay. they went to, to like a, you know, soccer game on Saturday, shot the kids game, um, did little like bios and they put together this package. They would sell to the parents. Hmm. Okay, um, that's an interesting deal concept. Yeah. And they, they had like, concept. they had all these, these little kits, you know, like, like with like, you know, graphics and titles. And that's actually, um, yeah, I forgot to mention that, that that's, that's where I really got into after effects. I was creating these little like animated titles and starting to experiment with 3d a little bit and just sort of helping them create a package. They had some stuff from before and I sort of improved upon it and I was editing there um, and made quite a few friends um, so, so that's sort of where my, that was like my first opportunity to shine, um, and had a, had a great, um, run there. Unfortunately, they, what I found out was, was they ended up, um, uh, not paying a lot of people, uh, 
customers, employees, and uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I realized right. I took I took a lot of phone calls from angry people and didn't really understand where they were coming from or why they were upset. So I ended up getting shafted in the end. Um, so it was sort of my, my first uh, industry lesson. Right. Yeah, that's um, a that's a whole <clears throat> other you know kind of part of things that people don't really think about. It's like you know, people usually think about oh, I, I want to work here. You know, I want to kind of you know, but in in the in the process, you have those kind of shady people that you bump into and you're like that. Yeah. Is, is that the whole industry like that? Sometimes, you know, it can really, can really throw you off and, and, you know, you could, you could come, you could fall into this despair or it's like, you know, if this is how things are, I don't want to be here. And those, you know, I think that's even worse, you know, of a damage than, than not paying is like kind of getting people to think that, uh, you know, the, the industry is not what it is kind of thing. Absolutely. And you know, like, like you, when you're, when you're hurting that much for work, I mean, that was the first place that took me seriously. I wanted to believe in it, you know, even, even when it was on fire and sinking, it's still (laughs) like, that's all I have, you know? Um, so you kind of, you kind of suspend disbelief with a lot of things that sort of get yourself through it. Um, because what other option do you have? Fortunately, through those contacts, you know, that helped me out. And, you know, the producer was working there she went back to montgomery company and uh and was able to uh get me in there uh on you know on a quick job and uh, i think it was like some promo work and you know i i like to think that uh that they didn't know that i was as green as i was <laughs> and that i sort of like snuck in and and like tricked them but but, but awesome. by doing really good work you know and then that was my school was like going right. there i'm sure they knew <laughs> but um but they had the patience to um to give me a chance and um and they also you know they 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 saw something in me so I think back then also it was really hard i think to find i mean correct me if i'm wrong i'm my experience is a bit different because i i'm from israel originally and that's where i kind of got my first start in, you know in the professional world but um back then in that time there weren't a lot of uh like people you know, graduating from schools that are teaching this kind of thing. I mean, um, this is fairly new, wasn't it? Oh yeah. Everybody I worked with at the time, they were coming from art center and Otis. And this was like, this is the first time I ever even heard of those schools or even knew what art school was all about, or even know that knew that, um, you know, art could actually be profitable. Like they, they were all coming from, from design background. They either learned from, you know, design teachers or they learned like Maya 3D, you know, from like school of right. animation. Um, so, you know, and I like, like, I honestly, like, like when I was in high school, I, I really loved to draw and paint and I wanted to be an artist, but I, I, I thought it was a sort of like a, a dead end profession because I only thought of fine art. I didn't realize that graphic design was like such, such a big thing. Um, right. So had I stuck with it, maybe I would have had like a, you know, a quicker path to where I wanted to be. But, you know, um, uh, I think my life would be a lot different. So I'm grateful for the, you know, the path that I went through. Um, right. and yeah. you know, th- this is my learning process. So I, I you know, I, I worked with a lot of, a lot of artists who, who really inspired me and, uh, you know, sort of taught me things here and there. And what was great about it was, um, you know, I had this perspective of sort of being the outsider, um, where I also had sort of a filmic background. I was, you know, thinking about storytelling and concepts a lot more than just execution. Um, 
And I could also sort of pick and choose what I liked, you know, as far as like what I was learning from other people. Um, so it kind of gave me like a, like a unique way to look at things. Right. Um, a bit of an edge. And I think that's like probably something that you keep noticing probably like to this day, having, you know, being kind of like on that intersection between two different disciplines, I guess, gives you this kind of unique perspective and edge. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's really easy in the animation world to try to make stuff look really crazy and complex to, to make it look more, I don't know, like cooler or, or, or just like, I don't know, trying to get someone's attention through, you know, smoke and mirrors. But, um, it's hard to sort of look back and just think about, you know, cinematics, like how, how can I, you know, make, make this feel epic and filmic. And, um, you know, some studios I worked with later, they were really good at this. It was, it was this sort of idea of like less is more, um, you know, and, and, and that comes into play a lot, I think with, with what we do. Right. And I think that as a, as a cinematographer, someone who is there like kind of on the day needs to operate the camera and sometimes have to make like very quick decisions about what's important in this scene. What's, you know, where, where is the viewer's eye going to go? You know, where should I, how should I frame this in the best way? And you kind of like from that real time decision-making process, you got to get this, uh, get this natural ability to prioritize and to, and to, you know, frame your, your mindset around what, you know, what, what the core value, like the core kind of center of, of what it is that you're doing that I think a lot of uh, artists who come from, you know, more, let's say from, from the static arts, from drawing <coughs> and things like that, they, they haven't, you know, they, they end up doing it almost subconsciously as well, but it's not as kind of immediate because it's, it's more of a process that they can allow to, to take time. Whereas when you shoot something for real, you, you don't have that luxury. You have to make those decisions on the fly. Um, and I think that whole thing about like shooting, being, you know, focused, I guess taking a step back and, and, and not kind of away from, from all the detail and making broader decisions about, you know, where to, where, where it's more important to be, you know, to be detailed and where, where can we be a bit more blurry, you know, out of focus and, you know, is, is, is a real kind of important talent or important, uh, mindset to be in, I think. Absolutely. Right. That's what you're kind of talking about in terms of like, you know, for whereas other <laughs> artists might've been kind of invested in the detail and how to make things more complex and how to, you know, make it more impressive. You were more, you're one of those people who are, who are more focused on what the purpose of this whole thing is and like, you know, the bigger, the bigger picture and how things are connecting to each other and what purpose does it all serve, you know, in terms of, especially if it's a, an opening title where you also want to convey a lot of information and not just be, you know, generally beautiful kind of thing. Right. And, you know, at that time, you know, um, it was kind of, it was a moment where we were trying really hard to make, you know, typography and, and title animation is sort of uh, dynamic as possible. And and I think a lot of projects we worked on, we went way too far overboard. You know, a lot of wacky, wacky like you know, extruding and bouncing type and sort of like layers in 3D that break apart from each other. Right. And then, you know, um, that kid stays in the picture effect. Um, we started doing that where you split out of the 
photograph in a documentary and like clone out the background so it has some parallax to it. Oh yeah, you know things like that. Um, we we were I mean everyone was just sort of experimenting with tricks and you know unless unless you sort of had a background in Maya like uh, 3D wasn't really uh, an option so there was a lot of experimentation which is you know planar 2D in a 3D environment and you right. know, things like After Effects so you know it was again it was sort of like an evolution of of um, of that process and. You know, uh, most of the, the, the good 3D was still just in like VFX and movies at that, that point. Right. You know, it's funny because I, I actually started in 3D and I, and I only discovered compositing like probably about five years later or something like that. It's because I, and, and then when I discovered compositing, I, I couldn't believe, you know, the fact that I was doing so many of those things in 3D and, and kind of rob myself from, you know, from, from the freedom that compositing gives you, you know, oh, yeah, for sure. all the, all the tricks that all those things that I, you know, sweated so hard to, to try to make, you know, in a 3d software that are so easy to just achieve on, on a compositing software. Um, what 3d yeah. program are you using? Uh, I still use 3d studio max actually to this day. That's the one I started in. Okay. Um, I, I learned that for one project and then never use it again. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you usually use? Uh, cinema 4d or. Yeah. Well, um, mainly cinema and, and Houdini, um, mm-hmm. Houdini is m- more recent, but you know, I, when I first started, I, I tried to learn Maya cause that's what, uh, all the artists were using at the time. Right. Um, and then around 2004, someone told me about cinema 4d. Um, so I was able to get a copy of it and <clears throat> I, I absolutely fell in love with it. The problem was no one was using it at that time. It was like a very small, sort of uh, group of people and it was hard to find it at a studio or even right. for, for a studio to take it seriously because they had pretty rigorous Maya pipelines. Right. Um, <clears throat> um, but it, it was something that I found, you know, easy to use and I could, I could work with quickly. So I think once I started getting into 3d and cinema like that, that sort of expanded my, my um, sort of uh, toolkit and, and sort of, you know, like my, range and ability of what I could do. It expanded it greatly over the next few years. And, you know, I got to a certain point I, I was about, I was at Montgomery and company for about two years, yeah. uh, just sort of permalancing. <clears throat> and, um, I remember sitting down with the owner who's, uh, one of, one of the, the, the nicest people in the industry. And, you know, like he, he was in many ways, my mentor for, for a long time and went into to ask for a raise. And he, he said, you know what, you're like, you're ready for the world kind of speech, you know? Um, huh. So, so like, I'm not going to pay you more, but <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I mean, he couldn't, you know, cause it, it, oh, this was at, at this point, it was sort of like, like the decline of like the really high budget main titles, you know? So there was the golden era, like the first golden era of motion graphics was like in the, the really early two thousands. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of was on a decline in sort of the mid two thousands. It got a little weird, you know, it, uh, it became shifting like main titles that for TV shows were, were being cut down to like, you know, seven second bumper, for example. Um, oh. a lot of studios we were working at, we were working on promos or things for commercials. That's where the money, you know, started coming around with. Um, right. but, but it was good. I mean, I, I think it was, <clears throat> it was also just like the right time for me to sort of try something different. Um, so, um, you know, I started freelancing around town, which was scary at first. Um, but I'd already worked with enough artists and producers that I was able to find contacts and, you know, find one job after the next. Um, by then were you also, you were, you were already in LA? Yeah, no. So I was in, I was in LA since, you know, 2003. So ever since I I was, I was working at Montgomery, Montgomery company, which is in, was in Culver city. Um, yeah. So, so then I, you know, started bouncing around in different houses and 
checking them out. And, you know, some, some are really big studios, some were small. Um, and I think it, it, it was in 2006 where there was sort of like the big change for me. And that was, there was a, this artist who I worked with at Montgomery company named Bill Sneed, who's, um, what, hands down one of the most talented artists I've ever worked with. Um, and he, he sort of recommended me for this job at a studio called blind. And I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that it was going to be a pretty intense, you know, few days of work. And it was for a, a music video for Niles Barkley, uh, song crazy, which is like the, the like famous Rorschach, uh, music video. Okay. Uh, and, and that was, a uh, that was sort of like the first, big job that, that I worked on that, you know, that won a bunch of awards and, you know, got, got quite a bit of recognition in the industry. Um, and then a few months later, um, uh, what did you you do on it? Like what was your, um, it was, it was like after effects work. So it was a, it was a mix of compositing, um, animation. You know, we had a lot of like these, the, you know, the, um, the DP shot a bunch of, uh, uh, ink blots, uh, you know, just on white, and then we had some, some design frames and we were basically just coming up with sort of, um, abstract or, or, you know, uh, kind of like not innuendos, but sort of like all like double images of, of things in, 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 uh, in the ink blots, things right. like skulls and flowers and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, it was just like, there were, there were a bunch of artists working all hands on deck and we were all just co- sort of making this, mo- these modular pieces, they would all go together to make the music video. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so then a f- few months after that, same artist, uh, this guy, Bill, he, um, he recommended me for another project he was on that, and it was, a it was a commercial for Apple. And at the time, uh, one studio had been doing all of these Apple spots. These were like the sort of like the famous silhouette, uh, silhouette commercials. Yeah. Um, uh, I was working at this small studio called, well, not small, but, um, the studio called Exopolis that, um that had pitched and won, uh, their concept, which was completely different and involved, uh, having iPods that created light streaks. So mm-hmm. it was like in darkness and, uh, created these cool light streaks. And this was actually the, the only job that I did in 3d studio max because it was, wow. uh, the, um, the creative directors on it, uh, had used it. And I came in, I was like, uh, you guys know that I, I don't know 3d studio max. Right. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, you'll learn it. And, um, it, it was actually pretty easy to learn. That's when I realized that, you know, once you learn one 3d program, uh, all that, that knowledge of, you know, it could transfer across to anything else as long as you know where, like, you know, where the buttons are. Yeah, um, exactly. It's really like the, the hardest part is just to kind of get used to a new, you know, navigation system and, and figuring out where things are. <clears throat> yeah. So that was, that was another big job too, that, um, that did really well, looked really cool. Um, it's one of those things that it's referenced a lot. Um, and then so from, when you say like a big job, um, what do you mean by it? Like in terms of, uh, exposure that it get, did it, did it also translate it into kind of better kind of cred credibility that you have as a, as an artist? Yeah, I think it's all the above. I mean, for in, in the, in the motion graphics or motion design industry, it, you know, the, the things that are, that, that sort of stand out the, the best are the ones that are still sort of referenced years later. Cause we do so much work. We do a lot of cool stuff and you, you might do it on the com- work on a commercial and then it, it airs a couple times and then it's never seen again. Right. Um, so sometimes there are things that, that set trends or that like people try to copy or, you know, there's a certain type of effect that becomes popular for a while. So right. this was just like one of those, those years where I was lucky enough to be on some, some really, you know, important projects. 
um, that helped uh, sort of define my career and find similar type work and just sort of expand my network. Um, right. And also skill set because they were really you know, demanding jobs that were difficult and pushed me far. And I worked with really uh, solid teams of, you know, amazing artists. Um, so, so yeah, that, that led to, you know, working at a bunch of new studios and the, um, the, the, the creative directors of, of that project actually went to start their own company called Royale, which is actually still around and is a super successful company and a really talented uh, group of people. So I was, you know, got to work with them for a few years, um, again, as a permalancer before I moved on to, to, to work at other places. Um, um, I'm actually watching the uh, iPod Nano commercial from Exopolis on your, on your website. It's really cool. Oh, thanks. Um, it really holds up. I mean... Was it HD? Yeah, it must have been HD. Right? <laughs> That's a funny one because we we actually um, we we did it all in standard def, four by three, <laughs> yeah. and then like like a few days before we delivered, uh, <laughs> the client said, "Hey, this is great. Uh, when do we get the HD version?" And we all kind of looked at each other because you know this was 2006. Not everything was was delivered right. in HD. You know, yeah. it was you know a lot of stuff was still SD at 30 frames per second. So we had to you know recompose and re-render all the 3D and like the you know, this is at summertime in, uh, uh, where was it? Silver Lake. And it was like 105 degrees outside. The uh-huh. AC stopped working. We had all these computers in, and this is, you know, the first sort of code black project we worked on. So they had like all the windows and, and, uh, and doors, uh, you know, like, like <laughs> can't covered get up worse. And then yeah. the computer. And then, and then you had to, I actually remember <clears throat> being in a similar situation where it got worse because we had a render farm that was mm-hmm. like on a rack. Uh, so not only the AC stopped working, but we also had to keep those computers cold. So they brought in a huge fan and they basically funneled the hot air from the computers right through the room that we were in oh, no. like, to, into the window because we we're in this like, you know, big building and it was only one, you know, one air direction. So I all had to go through the room. And anyway, it was like, <laughs> just remember us sitting there like with our shirts off and like sweating. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from there on, um, you know, I, uh, I, I got to work at a lot of like r- really great shops. I mean, the, I think the the next sort of like you would ask in, in, uh, in sort of the, the initial questions you're, you're, you would ask me about, um, you know, what are the sort of defining moments, right. Uh, in the career, in my career. And I think the next one I was, I, I started working at, um, a studio called motion theory and, um, they were sort of one of the the early companies that, that set a lot of trends and style and, and technique. They did, um, one of the, one of my favorite things they did back in the day was this uh, music video for Beck, uh, mm-hmm. called, Gir- called girl. And it did like these mad fold ins where, you know, the, the, um, the environment around him folded in, but it was all done with like really beautiful photo reel CG in like 2005 or six. So it was like wow. really ahead of its time. So, <clears throat> so I started working with these guys and, you know, these, these were, um, uh, you know, commercial directors, they weren't, they weren't too much older than me, but they had like a, they'd been doing this stuff since they were in their early twenties and, um, soup, they, they were super cinematic. I mean, like everything about, about their style was, was all about, you know, these sort of these slow, simple, elegant camera moves. And it wasn't about a bunch of crazy colors. It was more about, uh, things that you almost couldn't see. They would catch light here and there, you know, almost like a, a good example, um, was like a spider web. How like you catch like the, the sort of like the iridescent colors of it 
like yeah. when, when light hits in a certain way. So that was sort of like the, the mentality that, that, um, that these guys had. And, um, uh, quite a few spots I worked on there, um, early on, there's one for, it's on my site for, uh, for Buick and, um, it's a figure skating spot where they're yeah. with a bunch of particles that one. Um, and then also, um, the IBM data films, like in particular data baby, that's probably one of the, the, the most referenced projects that I worked on. Um, these were, these were jobs that, you know, we, we sort of, uh, we invented a lot of the effects as we went and it was, it was a lot of experimentation and, and, um, just really sort of pushing ourselves to, to make something that looked both elegant and complex at the same time. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm looking at the Buick one right now. And that was what, what year was that? 2006, 2007? That was 2010. Oh, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's really nice work. Yeah. So, you know, around that time, I think that was also when, uh, you know, DSL, DLS, DSLR video was mm-hmm. becoming pretty big and you had, you know, like the 5D Mark III coming out. So, right. so just like you said, suddenly you could start shooting, um, you know, with a 24 to 70 L series lens. It's like, you know, a $2,000 lens that looked great on photos. And suddenly you don't have this, you know, crappy video camera lens. You have something that's, that's really beautiful and cinematic and you could shoot macros. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd been for, for years in parallel with all this, I'd been traveling a lot. That was kind of like my big passion at the time. Um, even more than, than, you know, working in, in, you know, film or motion was just traveling. So, um, I'd been all over the world and, you know, I started shooting footage and, um, that at least sort of got my hands busy with, with just sort of getting back into sort of the filmic side of things. Even if I was just capturing little snippets of video that were kind of useless, um, I was going, going back home and sort of cutting together these little like editorials, uh, of, of my trips and, that process allowed me to come back into that mindset of like, okay, here's all my footage. Now I need to catalog it. I need to, you know, uh, convert it into proxies for editorial. I need to go through what works, what doesn't, uh, cutting things to music. It it became like an exercise, you know, that I would do over and over again. They would just sort of keep me, um, keep my mind fresh with how I'm sort of, you know, bringing in all this media, managing it and coming out with the product at the end. Um, and, you know, this sort of process really helped me uh, in my professional work as well. Um, but then as, as DSLR video um, became more accessible um, and they started coming out with like, you know, lighting equipment and sliders and cheap steady cams, things like that. Um, I started getting back into shooting uh, more live action again. And um, back in, I think it was about, it was the, near, near the, it was a summer of 2012. And, uh, I was working at, at the studio blind where I'd worked on Narl Sparkly, right. um, some, some like four or five years, no, six years earlier. Um, and Chris Doe, who's the owner, um, who he also runs this, uh, this podcast called the future now. Um, oh, yeah. uh, he, yeah. So, so he's the owner of blind and he founded it. It's been around for, I think oh, almost 25 years, maybe. Um, he, he started this, this little uh, group of uh, like AV club, basically a bunch of artists like myself who spent all day working on motion, you know, pitching for clients, doing client work, um, sort of an outlet for us to get back into, um, filmmaking or for some people starting 
to learn filmmaking for the first time. A lot of these guys didn't come from film school, you know? So right. it was, it was this, this cool little group where we got together, you know, once a week, traded ideas, people would teach little lectures if they knew something about like lighting or editorial. And, uh, we started, you know, giving each other's, giving the group assignments, you know, make a 60 minute film about your favorite food, for example. Um, 60? Oh, sorry, 60 seconds. Oh, okay. 60 I seconds. was like, wow. That's <laughs> no, a, a lot that, of time to talk that'd be too advanced. Food. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was actually the first, the first uh, test. So this got me excited because, you know, I, I've been sort of putting together like little short films or trying to put stuff together, but I didn't have deadlines and deadlines are super important for these kind right. of thing, um, especially when you have no client. So this really pushed me and I had an audience that who I had to like, you know, like, like make something that I felt was worthwhile to show my effort, you know? Yeah. Um, so as that started happening, was that started, like, sorry, uh, was that club something that you guys like met at people's houses or was there like a place you guys, uh, gathered in or how, how did that look? This was, this was at blind studio. So, okay. um, so they, so we, we met there and, you know, fortunately like we are, we already had like this sort of location, um, you know, and some resources for, for putting this together. And that was all, um, the generosity of, of Chris and, uh, and his studio. Yeah. This is um, amazing. That's, uh, very inspiring. I have a, yeah. Keep going. Sorry. I didn't really... No, no, go ahead. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, did something similar. I called it the film club. He actually uh -huh. is from Denmark. Uh, he started in Denmark a few years ago and then, um, we both went to the same film school and it was in my class and, um, he kind of, um, imported that tradition, and the idea was that we, they would only do it once or twice a year, actually. So it's uh, oh, wow. very rare. But the idea is that you have to make a short film that you're going to screen at the, at, the, at the meetup unless, I mean, otherwise you can't just, you can't come. So it's like, right. if you want to join, you have to bring a film with you. Uh, so that was very encouraging because, you know, like, and especially once you've done it like once or twice, it became this kind of thing where it's like, oh, I... I really want to be in the next one. So I better, you know, get off my ass and, and do something. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, kind of similar process, just a more, uh, uh, aggressive timeline for this stuff, you know, um, right. there, there were no real expectations. So, um, so I, I went and, and, you know, decided to do my first, the first film, which was your favorite food. Um, and, uh, I came back with this, this one minute short called supper time, uh, which I have on my site, but, um, yeah. bas basically it's, uh, uh <laughs> I, I, I asked my ki my friend if I could film his three-year-old kid and, Oh, so it's not your kid. No, no. So I, you know, I, 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 um, I had these expectations for what I could film cause I didn't really know how a three-year-old would act. And I thought, okay, maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be able to get this great footage. I'm going to interview him. Um, he's going to talk about it, like, you know, spaghetti, his favorite food. Um, and it didn't go well at all. And he, you know, he didn't want to be filmed. He didn't want to sit in, in a certain place. And a lot of stuff I didn't understand until, you know, I had had my own kid. Um, so I kind of went home and I had all this footage that was sort of random and didn't make much sense. <laughs> so I thought, okay, what can I do? All right, well, I'm just going to make it into like a weird, like freaky dubstep thing. And, um, <laughs> and, and then I just started creating a bunch of like, you know, like, like CG to go, go into the shots. And, you know, I really, I really didn't have much time. So I, I sort of tested one thing, tried it out. If it works great. And I'd go on to the next thing. Um, and so I came back with this result and everybody was kind of like, what the hell did I just watch? Um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, it, 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 it was a, it was a fun process. And, and, you know, from there, like, 
you know, a, a month later, we had a, another project and we kept sort of, you know, raising the stakes, um, you know, just by, by our own sort of, uh, like choice, you know, like, right. You, you so, kind of so, want to, you want to keep challenging yourself. You don't want to. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, obviously like I was, I was, I wanted to show people what I could do, but, but at the same right. time, but, but really like what I was trying to do was, was to challenge myself and see what, how I could push myself. So just like, like you mentioned, like every, every film sort of has like a, like a different sort of fundamental idea or a technical sort of um, like challenge, you know, right. I, I, I push myself with each, you know, uh, preceding film until I got to this film called Epoch, which um, is, was supposed to be something that we would do in a, I th- it was either a week or a month and it ended up taking me about seven or eight months to do. Huh. Um, wow. But, you know, we just, we just finished screening uh, our Halloween film. And I had this idea on my drive home and I wrote it that night. And, um, and I realized I, I had all this footage for, that, that I had taken from around the world, you know, right. like all these like really beautiful shots that I didn't really have a, a, a use for. So I sort of strung this narrative together, um, you know, using that footage and then um, sort of thinking like, what kind of story can I tell? Um, between everything. And then I came up with this idea of these sort of like demigods and, and their, their romance over the ages and, and how like each era was sort of manipulated by them. And from there, you know, um, started finding, you know, props and costumes on eBay and military surplus stores and like creepy, like, uh, German, uh, military memorabilia sites and stuff, you know, just to, to put everything together, uh, to create the film. Right. And, um, and then, you know, cast actors who were awesome. And, uh, you know, it was still, um, I mean, it, it wasn't like, I guess I should, I should, I should start with this idea that like after going to film school where, you know, our, our senior project cost maybe 30 grand to make, mm-hmm. I, I, I had this in working on, on, uh, film sets, I had this expectation that I had to have this big crew and a lot of money and like equipment in order to pull something off. So right. I, I, um, I think a lot of this process was sort of like learning to have faith in just an idea and like the right people. So, you know, we, we rented an RV and we drove out to the desert and shot this film in like, you know, a couple days, um, with a really, you know, aggressive schedule to shoot everything and a lot of costume changes and, you know, no real like, uh, room for error. However, right. at the same time, it was all experimental. So we could kind of, you know, figure out things and, you know, if they worked, they did. They, if they didn't, you know, oh, well, you know, one of the right. ideas was, was to shoot, um, you know, I, I had this idea of like these, you know, these people like floating in the sky, like embracing. And, uh, I, I wasn't really sure how I would do it. So I thought, okay, well, what if I put a green screen in a swimming pool and we just put on scuba gear and shoot them underwater? And so we, we just, we used my friend's pool and tried it out and it worked great. Um, And you scuba dive yourself. So you have, yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and so, and, and, you know, like one of the actors, I mean, he, he was, he was super brave. He, he basically, we, we, we put, um, like a scuba tank down at the bottom of the pool with a weight and he would just like swim down and like sort of grab air from down there. So he, he could like stay underwater between takes and this is it this is like January. So, I mean, it, it is Southern California, but it was still pretty cold. The water was like, you know, in the, in like the low seventies. Uh, wow. so they were troopers and, you know, like our, the main actress, she went running out in the snow barefoot and, you know, we did, we, 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 we did a lot of, a lot of like just really, um, you know, like 
I don't know, <laughs> like sword fights and things like that, that, that were, we didn't have a medic on site on set. So <laughs> it, it was, a, it was risky, but every, everybody really was, was into the idea and, and really loved the process. So I think it was all learning process for us. I didn't feel like it was like a, you know, a strict film set where, where we had to like abide by any certain rules. And, right. um, and yeah, I mean that, that in, in the end it, it, you know, it turned out something turned out to be something that I'm really proud of. And, uh, you know, even six years later, it's still like probably one of my favorite projects I've done. Um, but, uh, but it, it definitely sort of, it got, whoop, it got my, my, my head back in the game of like filmmaking and, and, you know, like, like creating things as, as a director and, and just sort of like coming up with like a, a filmic language of my own. And I realized that it sort of brought me in a full circle career wise where I'd sort of in some ways given up on the filmmaking aspect of what I was doing because I got into post-production and it was sort of, it was, you know, a means of survival um, where I thought that I would never really go back into live action. Um, But it ended up, you know, circling right back to it. And then now I have all these skills for, you know, from 15 years of working in post-production that allow me to do a lot of things that, that, you know, like, uh, some live action directors wouldn't be able to. So I'm really grateful for the, the process. And when you were still working as a freelancer, uh, you mentioned, you know, working on, on all those really awesome kind of spots like the, <coughs> the IBM database, that was motion theory, I see. And you, were you kind of like bouncing, doing freelance work for different, uh, motion graphic studios at the time or? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, like a lot of the jobs run like anywhere between a month or two sometimes right. more. Yeah. Um, and some places I ended up being at for a while, like at motion theory, I ended up staying there for basically two years straight, just working on projects back to back. Right. And, and during that period, were you interacting with directors a lot with like the you know, people who shot the live action bits as well, or were you mostly kind of disconnected from them? Oh yeah. All the time. Uh, the directors at, at, um, at motion theory were, you know, like mentors to me because, you know, they, they were working on these, you know, these big, budget commercials and you know some of them had come from uh you know episodic tv um right. they shot music videos i mean you know um matthew cullen the the um the one of the founders of motion theory you know he was shooting these these Katy perry videos that you know have like a billion views wow um so <clears throat> it was a great it was a great resource for me to to learn from them and also just to get their encouragement you know like when you have these amazing directors who you you've looked up to for years you know, watching and enjoying your work and giving you constructive, uh, criticism and feedback. It's amazing. Did you ever get to be on set with them or usually? Yeah. Depending on the, on the job, you know, some things, some things I was on set for other things, you know, um, it it was, it was either someone else's job or, you know, um, it, it just depends on the dynamic and the studio I was working at. I think that must also kind of inspire, you know, just being on set and seeing a director work and, and all that kind of goes into it. And, you know, you're probably thinking, well, you know, maybe I can do it one day. <laughs> like, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm noticing you've worked on something called friendly fire as a visual effects supervisor. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So that, that was, um, yeah, that was, um, that was, uh, for Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son. Um, really? he, huh. yeah, he, he created, a, um, uh, this, um, it, it was an, it was a new album that had come out and he wanted to create like a, um, like a feature film that was a, basically a collective of all the music videos with some, some narrative strung together. So, um, each song on, you know, uh, on the album 
was a music video that was strung together with the same narrative. Right. Um, and um, I worked alongside a, um, a good friend of mine, uh, Penny Niederlander, and uh, and she and I, uh, you know, would either supervise or animate or or composite. Um, we basically had to, to manage a, a bunch of different music videos um, uh, for this like bigger project. Uh, right. It was really cool because I actually got to work with with Sean Lennon. Uh, you know, he he did a lot of the, the original artwork. So, you know, we were sitting in a um, like a tiny garage in in Venice in the summer, just you know, drawing frame after frame. We didn't really know how to use any sort of um, like uh, you know cell animation helper like Flash or Toon Boom. We were just doing it by hand, drawing on paper, and then uh, scanning every every frame into Photoshop to do cleanup work and then into after effects. It was a nightmare, (laughs) but, (laughs) but it was, it was a fun experience, um, to say the least. Um, and you know, it was, um, the music video, one of the music videos I worked on, it it was, it was an homage to this, uh, to this French film, uh, called, uh, I think it's the planet Sauvage or fantastic planet is the American title. Um, which is like this really like, sort of surreal abstract, uh, animated film from the seventies. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just, it was, it was really cool experience. Had it had a really fun premiere at the Egyptian. Nice. That's always a, pl- I mean, it's the Egyptian is such a kind of you know, amazing place to, to, to experience. Cause it's like, it's got so much history in it, you know, like so many film, huge films. Yeah. Right there and, it was awesome. I had a uh, Carrie Fisher and Tracy Ullman were sitting behind me and they were like cracking jokes. It was pretty, pretty wow. funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw you, you had a visual effects supervisor credit there. Um, for oh, for, for, yeah, for friendly fires. For yeah. Friendly yeah. Fires. So, so, um, so there were, there were a couple shoots that, that I supervised when, uh, when, uh, uh Penny was out of town. So oh, I got I to, to be involved with that. Um, so that was cool. That's cool. Um, and then, I mean, uh, Supper Time, no, sorry, uh, not Supper Time, Epoch, I guess, got, uh, I noticed it got some, it won some awards. Um, I, I guess I'm kind of wondering what, you know, is, did Epoch kind of like open the door to, to back to filmmaking or how did you end up like, so, so you, so you did this short film and it, um, it kind of uh, brought some appetite to to like to go back into the traditional like you know to live action filmmaking uh what did you do next then what what was your um the the film i did after that was called red within uh which is a bit more of like a psychological thriller um but what one thing i found is that that with each project i was doing my timeline was expanding more and more you know i was just like you know i was becoming too much of a of a perfectionist with trying to like edit it right or you know get get the right effects and you know, in some cases I pushed myself too hard and, you know, then things, things in life got in the way too. So, um, so what happened was, was around 2014, um, uh, Matthew Cullen, who's, uh, one of the, the motion theory, uh, founders who I mentioned, he, he asked me if I wanted to, um, to direct a trailer for the, um, the LA film festival. Cause I'd, I'd helped out, um, and, uh, and worked, it was kind of like a co-direction thing with a bunch of other artists, like, like in 2011. Right. Um, but th- this was something that I could, you know, conceive and, and, and shoot on my own. Um, you know, and they had like a, like a small budget for it, but, um, we had like, you know, resources from motion theory, which then became a studio called Murata, but it was the same people. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, so that was sort of like the first, like, you know, quote unquote professional, uh, directing gig that I had, um, 
which, you know, like we went all around the city shooting uh, a bunch of actors and um, sort of strung together this narrative about struggling artists and just people getting by in LA and, um, and coming together for the festival. Right. Um, and then um, from there, I mean, you know, it started getting, you know, the, 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 the level of sort of access to professional work was, was becoming larger. Um, some, some uh, friends of mine had pitched on a, um, uh, uh, some commercials for Nike golf and they'd won the pitch um, and they wanted some help and uh, you know, with the, the live action aspect of it and then also sort of the technical side of things. Um, so they, um, they asked me to come on board as a director and uh, work closely with them and put everything together. Um, and that ended up being this, you know, four commercial campaign. We flew down to a Cape town, South Africa to shoot it. Um, and you know, it was, had, wow. had a, 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 a massive stage with 4k projectors doing rear projection, um, a, a amazing art department crafting all kinds of like really beautiful, uh, handmade rigs. And, um, and then, you know, I had, uh, what um, do you mean by handmade handmade rigs for like, uh, so, so one of the ideas that we came up with, and I, I worked really close with, um, with, uh, a, a, a longtime colleague of mine, Corey Shaw. He actually, I actually met him also at Montgomery company years back. So, hmm. you know, a lot of the people I met early on became some of, you know, like my best friends and colleagues in the industry. Um, so he and I worked real closely to come up with this, this sort of idea of, um, almost like a bullet time effect, um, with golf, but but not in the way that you would expect with like the matrix. So it was yeah. more like, um, like a Moy bridge, uh, uh, type effect. So for example, uh, we did a commercial for the, the you know, the, the driver right. and, um, and as a driver swings back, it has a, a, a really, you know, specific form with how it arches and swings back down. And so what we did was we, we, um, we had them build this rig that was consisted of 12 drivers in the arc. And huh. you could see, the um you know the poles holding up the 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 driver themselves and each one was lit in a, a sequential order with lights so it was this sort of like diorama stage feel where you always sort of saw the behind the scenes but at the same time um you know it was it was on a set some other examples are you know we had cross sections of the grass so when the camera moved really low you would see into the dirt and the roots below um oh wow had, that's so cool yeah, we had like a rain machine that was basically, you know, it was um, a, a bunch of strings that were above that were dripping water and you could control the amount of it. Um, we had, and it feels like you were going reverse order, like you, the type of things you would probably leave in, you know, other production or other directors might leave for post-productions. You kind of like went backwards. You're like, hey, we know the effect we want to achieve, but how do we do it practically rather than, you know, rely on, on After Effects, for instance, to do that? Absolutely. I mean, it was like the more practical stuff we could do, the better. And, you know, so, some things that ended up getting cut, but we actually had them built and, and shot them. Um, you know, they're like the, the commercial that involved the, the golf ball. We wanted to show the different layers of, of, you know, the impact absorption inside the ball. So we actually had a series of the ball splitting apart and each piece broke off into its own orbit. And these were all being held up with plexiglass rods and it was put into like a plexiglass tunnel. So when you have, um, you know, like a telescopic type lens that can, that can really fit, uh, like through like narrow entryways, kind of like the thing that David Fincher used in, um, in panic room. Yeah. Um, uh, we actually physically flew through all this. So, 
So instead, it's so there are kind of things that you could do easily in CG, but the whole point was to have this really like hands-on feel. And then the, you know the backgrounds themselves, instead of them being uh, green screen, were um, were these uh, you know these rear projections where we we worked with a um, a post-production company called uh, Lucan in uh, in Cape Town, and they made these really beautiful uh, like animated uh, sort of environments. You know that they, they were almost playing like a we had like sort of like almost like a VJ, right? Right. Who, would, who would play the, this media like uh, on certain loops or timings, you know, to, to match what was going on with the, the golfer in the foreground. So you had this really sort of like, like tactile hands-on feel. It was, it was kind of similar to like, you know, like, um, like a Wes Anderson, like scene where he would show, for example, in life aquatic, you had the, the he introduces his boat and it's a cross section of it, you know? Right. Uh, so that was, that, you know, that was the feeling that we were going for. Um, I got to say just for people listening um, that there is, some really great behind the scene fake pictures of, of all of that stuff that you're describing right now in your website, right? In uh, johnrobson.tv. If you go and, and you, and you check the night golf commercial and you just scroll down, um, you'll see just a bunch of really, really awesome behind the scene photographs. And it kind of, it's interesting. Cause I've noticed that a lot of your stuff has uh, some pretty detailed behind the scene breakdowns. Is that something that you always do no matter what? I try my best to, cause I, I feel like, you know, um, on, on this level of production, um, yeah. it's, you know, some, some clients, you know, they, they don't want a lot of the behind the scenes stuff to actually be noticeable. You know, that's kind of like the, that's kind of the beauty of a lot of filmmaking, right? You know, it's like, yeah. you, you just want to show the beautiful finished product. So it almost doesn't do it justice if you can't see all the, the, you know, the, the, the craft work that goes into, um, you know, the stuff. And in this case, I mean, like the art department was like amazing. The DP was great. You know, it was, it was just like a really surreal experience. And I think it was fun for everyone, albeit stressful, but you know, right. like, like <clears throat> I think everyone there was doing something new and, um, it was an interest, interesting thing to manage because we just had like, you know, a lot of, you know, um, a lot of tasks to do and a lot of like, you know, methods that we were trying out and figuring out what worked and what didn't. Um, you know, one good example is that when we actually shot the, um, we, we shot on a Phantom Flex 4k. So, so we could shoot at, you know, super high speed, uh, slow motion. Um, but there were, there were things like when you hit a golf ball, it's still too fast. Yeah, I'm sure. 30,000 frames per second. Wow. And so at that point we decided, okay, that's going to have to be a CG element. Mm. Um, one of the things that, that, you know, um, that was decided late later in the game, like, you know, when, when the client was watching the stuff is they didn't like the look of some of the poles or the, um, uh, or the wires, the things that we deliberately left in sight. So we ended up having to do a lot of paint out work to clean right. it up, I you know? Yeah. So. Well, that's yeah. interesting is, was that the whole like approach of doing it all practically and, and, uh, you know, as opposed to CG, was that part of the original pitch that they liked or was that kind of a, a product, a production decision? The original pitch, if yeah. I remember correctly, was projection mapping on the actual products. Mm. So it was like, you know, it was having very stuff. Different. <laughs> yes, very different. And I believe that's what won the, that's what won the, the project. And then it became an evolution working with, with the client and with our writer to come up with something, you know, a, a bit more. Interesting. And so were you brought on as the only director or did you join the, the people that pitched it and you guys kind of co-directed it? 
So I, I was brought on as the the director for like the you know the onset aspect of it, um, and uh, my colleague Corey was the the creative director. So he focused on you know the design and and execution and you know as well as the post. So it, it was it was definitely a, a, a collaborative thing throughout the whole way. I mean, like we we were constantly sort of bouncing ideas off of each other. And, you know, we worked on a lot of projects throughout the years and, uh, and, you know, work well together. Right. And if, and if you had to kind of like isolate maybe the, you know, one of the kind of what would be the main reason you think he, he approached you specifically, what was it about you that you think he figured, you know, makes you the, the right, the right person to, to step in and do the onset directing work? Was that the short that you did or? I, I think it, it's a combination of, of, of him seeing that the passion that I had for, for just everything that I was involved in, be it, you know, from a motion and a post-production standpoint, but then also through, uh, obviously the, the, the live action films that I was making, you know, I think he saw someone who, uh, could handle managing all the aspects of a project and, and, you know, being sort of the, um, uh, you know, a strong leader who can make sure that we get everything that we need to bring it into post and, and, you know, and on from there. Yeah. It's funny. It's like, I, I kind of feel like the same way. Some, every time I, I did something new that I haven't done before, uh, there's a big part of, of wanting to do that is kind of like to prove to myself that I can do it. I think the, you know, being part of the AV club, for instance, is a similar way where you're like, you know, you're, you're being, kind of teased into, okay, show us what you got kind of thing. You know, this, this attitude of like, but a lot of it for me at least was like, can I really do that? I mean, I just remember one time I, um, I was, uh, I did like this kind of animatic that was solely for the purpose of, of testing an idea that I had just to see if it actually would hold up, you know, with music and, and in a timeline and, and play in real time. And then I showed it to people and put it online and somehow I got noticed and, know um was featured on youtube canada for some reason on new year's eve and and got like you know thousands and thousands of views all of a sudden it was like no that, that's just like a test that i did to prove myself that i can do something you know you know uh that i didn't know i could do before but it's funny how those things suddenly you know like become it starts out a test and then it almost becomes ammunition without you even realizing it ammunition in a way that's just kind of like this thing that you now can carry with you and and that proves to others that you can do something unique and and again like kind of improves your credibility and uh and leads to more work yeah it's funny how you can't you can't choose what that's going to be you know right a lot of times it's just sort of it just sort of happens and you're not aware of it and you, you might make something that you, you feel really proud about and it doesn't really get as much recognition and you know than something that you didn't really think much of or you just kind of on to the next project oh yeah so, totally and sticks, you know also the level of investment in projects, like I can look back and I have these, you know, I look back at my own, you know, uh, portfolio of things and, I, and I'm like, this thing took me two years and I got nothing out of that. This thing took me like two weeks and like, you know, it changed my whole career. <laughs> and like, there's, it's so weird sometimes how things kind of, uh, uh, you know, just, just happen unexpectedly. But I think it's like the, the ultimately it's like the, uh, the combination and the fact that, that you're just doing it. It's not like you're doing it for a specific person, a purpose at, at the same, you know, at the particular moment in time, you're just doing it because you want to do it because there's something you want to explore or some kind of challenge you want to, uh, you want to 
overcome or whatever it is and like you know just from the from the virtue of doing those things and having like a, an increasing number of 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 pieces under your belt that it kind of like you know eventually they they become something you know like people people associate you with something that they might have not associated you with you before and you know you're you know your your kind of uh perception outside of you know that you're close-knit of you know friends is is certainly you know uh becoming something that that leads to more work and more uh opportunities so that nike commercial was that like the first commercial you directed yes and did that lead to more work um it it led to um yeah i mean it's it's sort of been a combination you know like i've um it definitely helps on the sort of um the motion design and post-production side of things, just because it, it, it showed my ability to handle bigger clients, bigger projects. Um, um, some, some of the, you know, some examples of that are, are like, um, in recent years, uh, the, uh, the, the head creative, creative director at blind, um, a guy named Matthew Encina, who's an old friend of mine. Um, I've worked with him for years, um, you know, together on projects. And also I've worked for a lot of things he's directed. Um, he, uh, contacted me in, was it late 2016, I think, um, about helping him, uh, you know, pitch a concept for uh, a new Xbox commercial. And, uh, and then, uh, we worked together on the pitch and, uh, also then from then on, from that point on, you know, worked together on, um, just sort of creating the concept and, and the storyline and edit. And, uh, I served as a associate creative director on that project. And then just this last, this year as well, uh, we did another Xbox commercial, uh, same involvements. Uh, so that's been like a really great, uh, sort of, uh, collaboration that I've had recently. Right. I think I'm, I'm they're on your website as well, right? Yeah. I got, actually got to look, um, the, the first one, the Xbox One X commercial, the, the Vimeo went offline. So, I, yeah, I, I noticed that. <laughs> I think but that might have. Look great. I mean, I'm yeah. just looking. Uh, uh, did you do them? Um, did you create the stills themselves, or you kind of created more the the look, kind of the guidelines, and and had a team that you were supervising to to create the the actual uh, composites? It was kind of all of the above. Um, we had an amazing team. Um, I did a lot of the, the CG, um, but it ended up being a collaborative process to, um, working with, with the artists and Matthew and everybody else, um, involved, um, because, you know, we really had to push ourselves to hit the mark because we're, we're trying to create this, this idea called pixel threading. Right. And it was, it was the buzzword, but we, <laughs> we had to figure out what that meant. Um, you know, and we were, we were trying to sort of reinvent the wheel on every project we did. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was, it was throwing a lot of ideas, you know, at a wall to see what sticked or what stuck. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a, it was a challenging, but fun process. Now that I'm looking at it, it looks like it's down on blindsight too. So I got to let them know. Um, that's funny, hmm. but, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so, I mean, that, that's sort of, you know, in, in the motion world, that's been sort of, um, uh, uh, like a good sort of venue for me to, to work as a director. Um, 
also worked in a similar manner with this uh, studio called State Design. Um, I have on, on my site a, a thing for baskets, which is like an animated promo. Yeah. And that's a good example of something where <clears throat> I'm not a, I'm not a cell animator. So, uh, you know, my, my involvement was, was much more hands-off unlike a lot of the other projects where I, you know, worked with this, a team of really talented artists, but I could only sort of give my, <clears throat> I don't know, sort of, uh, <laughs> direction as you would say it. Um, which is, you know, how a lot of directors work. But for me, I've always been a very hands-on sort of director and led by example. So that was a, an interesting challenge in its own to sort of work with, you know, a medium that I have no control over. Right. That's beautiful. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. There's some really, it sounds, I mean, it looks very inspiring. It's like, uh, you know, from, from someone outside, it seems like you, you have the, the, you, you have the fortune of working on so many different styles and, and mediums and you really kind of, What's your kind of long-term goal with this? You, now that you've done, you've directed a few things and I see that you, you know, you, you're directing shorts as well. Like you, you, there's a, there's definitely more shorts that you've done and, and, and exploration, um, sorry, uh, experimental, uh, stuff as well, or, you know, like exploring like things like motion capture and, uh, and, uh, 3d scanning and things like that. Um, it's funny that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, get, I guess where where are you going with all that? Like, what's your kind of current uh, long term goal if you have one? Well so, well, so one of the big things, like um, the reason why after um, uh, let's see, I think Connect was the last big short film I did. I sort of took a, a back seat from um, from sort of the the, the longer timeline projects was just that I was I was using so much of my free time on these these things, and you know, um, it was getting in the way of life. Um, right. Had a kid. Um, you know, in 2016. So it was kind of like from that point on, I decided, okay, I, I need to just sort of take on, um, a bit more, um, you know, motion work or like whatever I can to sort of pay the bills and, and sort of, you know, get, get life back in order. Right. Um, and in the process I started doing a lot of like little like experimental things just because they were easier to pull off. And the, the irony is that like a lot of those became viral in comparison to the <laughs> short films because they're, you know, anyone can watch that. And <clears throat> you know, the average, uh, you know, like Vimeo or YouTube viewer only watches something for like 45 seconds. So right. it, you know, it, it worked out perfectly. The, um, this one I did called the F 500 steps, which is, um, um, I basically started, I took a scan of, of one of my friends, uh, Frank and, and, uh, who's a fellow artist. And, um, I didn't tell him that I was going to start putting him in all kinds of like funny circumstances <laughs> in, in crowd simulations and just used him as sort of a, like a, like a test piece for, um, for experimentation. Like your uh, views. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, and, uh, so I got, I got contacted, uh, last month by Ted talks and, uh, really? and they, yeah, they asked to put, to, to play this, um, like during one of their shows and it was funny. I watched a live link and they talked about it a little bit and it was just funny because like it was in between, you know, two, like two speakers talking about like really important things. And then suddenly you see this like weird, goofy animation of this, this like noodly looking character walking down the hallway <laughs> and everybody was just like, kind of like some people laugh at other people were just kind of in, in awe. Like what, what, what the heck did I just watch? <laughs> what did they say um, about it by the way? Do you remember? Uh, it, it was pretty brief, but it was just basically, I think it was like credits. And then they were saying like, you know, it was a 3d scan or something like that. Um, Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wrote, I wrote like a whole write up for it, but I, I didn't really understand what the format was. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in answer to your question, I mean, you know, like where, where does that leave from there? Well, um, you know, uh, I, I'm, 
you know, working more with, with different motion studios, um, as, as a freelancer, um, and as a director to, to sort of like, you know, get in on, on jobs early on to sort of pitch. Um, yeah. uh, but as far as like a live action world goes, um, I, I was contacted by, um, uh, you know, a collective, like a roster for directors called the Arsenal who've been around for, um, just over 10 years now. Yeah. And they, they added me to their roster as a, as a commercial director. So I've been working with those guys, um, the past few months sort of putting, you know, everything together and building up their site and real and whatnot. Um, so that's sort of probably one of my, you know, like more like, uh, what do you call it? Like not short term, but more like recent goals is, is, you know, working with them and building up a, you know, more prolific, uh, uh, commercial reel. So um, what, what made them contact? Is it based on like the Nike, stuff that you did or is it the uh those viral videos what, what do you think would would you kind of uh point out as, as the main uh, you know well one of the one of the directors uh charles paik um i worked with him at motion theory Murata back in the day he was a vfx supervisor oh. and so he he has this you know a similar sort of career path to me but he's you know a few years ahead and uh for him he kind of wanted like you know to to sort of separate himself from just doing effects work um, and, you know, working as, uh, you know, as a live action director. And so he's been doing that for like the last, uh, I want to say like five to seven years. Right. Um, so he's another colleague who, you know, um, has a lot of faith in me and, um, and, you know, introduced me to the team and we hit it off really well. And, you know, how does that actually work? I mean, the, the fact that you have like this collective and I mean, I, I've been managed and I know that at least, uh, you know, at the time we were in, I, I was managed for something else. I was managed for, as you know, for, the, for features and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it's, um, my, my experience was that essentially it's like, you're, you're kind of on your own. And the fact that you met your manager, uh, represents other directors actually works, uh, against you and not with you in a way, because that way kind of like, uh, you, more people are competing for the same projects in a way. And, how how does it work in in this case in terms of like working as a collective? How do you guys don't like overstep each other? Well, I think one of the big things is is it's a collective of, of directors um, who have very different styles, um, and you know um, s- some of the main guys they come from like like live action promo world where you know they 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 may not work necessarily on on many uh, visual effects jobs or you know things in motion. Whereas I come from from a post production standpoint, so I think our skill sets complement each other really well. Um, and then on top of that, it's 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 a bit more unconventional, um, but becoming more common, where um, where rosters and collectives now are um, are non exclusive. So um, you know where where some of the the exclusive reps will basically restrict you from working with other people, right? Um, but could also shelve you if there's an, too many directors who, and there's enough too much competition. You might end up not having work because you know you're you're at the bottom of the list as far as like you know who's going to get the job, who's even going to get to pitch. Right. So, um, so you know it's it's there are pros and cons obviously because it's you know you um, you have more freedom to work with other other people, but at the same time you also have to you know push from your own you know your own agenda as much as you can. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an evolution of a process that I'm still sort of figuring out cause it's fairly new. Um, but it's, it's an exciting place to be. 
I'm sure. And, and right now, you, you said you guys are kind of working on putting together a website and, and selecting the work. Is Are there like uh, interesting realization you've had as far as like, for instance, you've done uh, a variety of different projects. You've done the viral thing, the, the, the experimental kind of short tidbits that went viral. And you have... Um, and you also have these short films that are a bit longer, like 10 minutes or 15 minutes long. Um, and then you also have stuff like the um, Xbox thing where you you were, you were served as a different role than the director, right, on, on that one. Uh, or some of the older stuff that you've done before that for like IBM and, and the work you've done for... Uh, um, you know, for motion theory and stuff like that. What what are they telling you to put upfront? Like, what's the what's the strategy there? Uh, from from what perspective? From from the Arsenal perspective, or, or yeah, from the Arsenal perspective, like how to pitch you, uh, you know, for commercials right now. Well, I think I think one of the the things that it's important that I'm working on with them is um, is to uh, you know experiment with a bit of spec work, just so I have um, a bit more of like a like a prolific portfolio. It's one of those, like it's the catch 22 where it's like, okay, you're a director, but you know, where's the stuff you already directed, right. you know, in order to get the next thing. And, um, you know, one, one of the, one of the, you know, the producers I work with, you know, his, his thing is like, you know, you, you, um, you get a, a, you know, a, a call for, they're looking for a pickle commercial and, and you say, okay, we can do pickles. Okay. Well, where's your pickle reel? You know, <laughs> exactly. Well, we, have, we haven't done pickles, but we did a mustard commercial. Like, yeah, but that's not pickles, you know. And um, and that kind of goes for a lot of things. Like, you know, a lot of a lot of places want to hire you for the thing you already did, not for the thing you want to do. Right. Um, so so uh, you know, uh, the, sort of the short term uh, p- strategy that I'm working on right now is just coming up with more work, um, and you know, gearing it more towards a client approach instead of just an experimental project, and you know, working more with. Uh, live action people, um, you know, on, on a, a different level than just shooting on DSLR. So that's kind of a, a big thing. Um, and then the other, the other thing that I've been working on as well that I don't really have on my site because it's, it's still sort of, you know, an evolution process is, um, <clears throat> where I've been sort of heading career wise or where I've been wanting to go is, is focusing on narrative. And I mentioned this, you know, earlier is that like <coughs> concept and, and story have always been big things for me. Right. And, Working in a commercial world, I tend to, you know, overcomplicate a lot of my ideas also in short films too, where like I try to cram an entire feature story into 10 minutes. Right. It's not the right format for it. Um, so I've been doing a lot of writing the past year um, and, you know, putting together ideas, um, working on feature scripts, um, things that I know that I could pull off, um, you know, just with my own sort of resources and, and skill set kind of how I did with the short film, just taking it to the next level. I see. Um, yeah. And then another big one that I've been working with, a, a, you know, a producing partner of mine is a show series. And, um, I've been packaging together a, um, a world war one, uh, uh, epic that, that, uh, that I've been working on for a while, um, that, that takes place, takes place in, um, in the country of Slovenia where, which is where my wife is from. Um, huh. and it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a lesser known story. It's one of these things to Americans. They've never heard of it, but you know, there's an entire front that happened between Slovenia and Italy. Um, really? That, yeah. That, that, that almost no one knows about. And it's, 
you know, one of the, the most epic and, you know, sort of grueling stories uh, that, you know, that came out of, of the First World War. You know, a lot of what we see, pretty much everything we see, uh, you know, is, um, uh, you know, Germany and, and England and France fighting, you know. In, right. In it's Belgium. always like, it's, it's always the, those, you know, those guys. But it's. Yeah, exactly. So They're fighting. Italy are not like the, mo- yeah. the first uh, countries you associate with, like, you know, World War One. You think trenches, you think, you know, muddy, right. uh, sort of like, like explosive um, shells that are creating these sort of like, you know, uh, craters everywhere and they're just full of water and dead horses. That's like the World War One that, right. that everybody knows. Um, this is Alpine warfare. So it was between, um, between Italy and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, but it happened to be on Slovenian soil and it's this really beautiful Alpine Valley that has like a, this like emerald green river going through it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the the, the most beautiful places in the world. And if you went there today, you would never realize that it was the, the you know, the a host of, of such carnage where there's over a million casualties in like a, wow. a small valley. Um, it but must it, was some be, the, it must be also quite, uh, efficient to shoot there nowadays, isn't it? Like in terms of just costs and things like that, I know that this region of the world is, is not the most expensive to shoot at. Absolutely. And, and I went there last month uh, and met with, you know, production companies out there and, and just sort of, you know, garnering you know, interest and in seeing like who, you know, what sort of what the feedback was. And, um, you know, from the people I met, they absolutely loved it because, um, you know, this is a, this is a story that's, you know, they've, they've shot films and documentaries and stuff, you know, about that war in, in this this region. But but it's always been sort of the, the, the perspective of Italy or the right. Austrians, you know, it's, it's always like their big battle, but what they didn't realize is they're trampling over a whole, you know, community that that's, you know, basically forgotten during this period. Um, and then, you know, the, the sort of atrocities of world war two sort of shadowed that even further. So, um, you know, the, the, the people who, the Slovenes who read the script, they, they absolutely loved it. And, you know, it's, um, it felt really good to, to, to see that from an outsider that, that I could, you know, understand enough of their history, but also give my own take as a storyteller and as an American, right. My better perspective, how I could string together something that, that could work not only for them, but for an international audience. So that as a series or as a feature, it's a series. It started out as a feature that, but then developed into something, you know, uh, bigger. So it's basically, um, you know, a, a nine to 10 episode, a mini series. That's interesting. And, uh, you know, I have, I have a bunch of questions where, as you were saying, I, I have to ask. So one thing is, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it somehow easier potentially to, you know, to originate a, a concept like this, for instance, and just go pitch it and, and get a producer behind it or a distributor behind it than it is to find, to, to get into the commercial world? I think so. I mean, because, you know, it, it's, you're, you're selling something different. Like when, when, when you're selling an idea this big, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, if people are into it and they get behind it, it becomes this, this much big thing that's bigger than yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's an idea that grows and grows. And, you know, um, uh, in the commercial world, it's kind of, you know, you, you're, you're, sta- you're basically, I don't know, like you're the figurehead for, uh, uh, um, you know, a lot more and, and it's a smaller endeavor. Right. And, um, and while, you know, ultimately the budget's less, it's still like, it's a lot of money to, to put down on, on like, you know, a quick turnaround. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, th- like typically you're shooting for a client where exactly. you're, shooting a, 
a series or a film, you have financiers and, you know, you know, maybe a studio that's backing it where they, you know, they're, they're thinking about, you know, how, how, you know, are they going to profit from this to pay it off and, you know, make some money afterwards. Um, so it's sort of different, you and know, in, in features or, you know, TV, it's like content is king. So, you know, you're already like a, you know, a, a precious thing just by coming up with this idea and, and offering something for them to work off of. They're like, you know, they're, they're thirsty for that. Whereas in commercial, it's like, you know, if you're not going to direct this commercial, someone else will direct this commercial. It's not like, you know, this is going to be, you know, the, the core of the thing. It's ultimately about their product and what they're selling and not so much about, you know, um, a specific, I mean, of course they, they support, you know, original concepts and original ideas like what you guys did for for nike is amazing you know conceptually and and in the execution and everything but if it wasn't that it would have been something else and they do those and they do quite a bit of those all the time so you know they're not as like clingy to original ideas i think as as producers are for like you know uh pitches that they get for like films or, or tv series right but they also have to like it too, and, and they have to see value in it beyond you know just a good idea. It's like it's it something that's gonna, you know, that's gonna be profitable for them. But right. but you know, like right now is an interesting sort of time period because um, there, there's sort of it's like the space race, but for inter, for international or intellectual property, you know. Right. So so it's it's like I, I think back to like you know the the early mid seventies when you know, like Lucas and Coppola and like, you know, a lot of those, like the sort of like, I forget what that generation of directors were. Like they were actually like looking for, for young filmmakers, you know, with, with new ideas, um, Spielberg as well. Right. Um, it, it may not be to that level, but you know, it's, it's like a, a lot of these like streaming content channels are, 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 you know, they're on the hunt for as much IP as they can get. Yeah, no, it definitely is felt. And do you think like, as far as like, um, commercial goes when, when you finished working on that nike commercial uh that was kind of like your big break and your first sort of commercial directing gig did you have certain expectations that your career is now going to be you know suddenly shifted towards directing like were you expecting to suddenly be um showered by offers to direct commercials or kind of in, in a way in a way I've, i i kept expecting it to be to get to a point where it would just be easy and like work would come to me, you know, it, to, to, to an extent, I mean, like from, from like the, in the motion design world, like I've built enough reputation and contacts where, where, you know, people, people find me and, and, you know, like reach out to me about projects, which is amazing, yeah. you know? Um, but you know, in the directing and live action world, it's a little bit different, you know, because it's like it, it, in, in the motion project, a lot of times they, they're reaching out to you because they've already pitched on a project and they need someone to execute it. It's a little different when it's like, you know, actually trying to, to like bid and, 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 and pitch on a project. Um, so, so yeah, to an extent, it, it did kind of feel like there was a momentum going. And I think I, I underestimated the, you know, the fact that it's, it's a constant uh, sort of hustle and struggle, like forever. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, uh, and, and it's, it's, I, I mean, I guess there, there could be some sort of momentum, like with the, the next project you know, from the last project to the next, but I think ultimately it's, it's just up to, to the filmmaker, how much they want to push themselves, you know, after, yeah. after the, the Nike thing, I mean, that took a lot of, a lot of energy and, and, and work and, and, um, and late nights. So I kind of wanted to take a little bit of a break and, you know, it's, it's, as soon as you, it's like riding a bike, I guess, if you take a break for too long, you got to get back up and, and really start, 
you know, uh, uh, practicing a bit before you really feel comfortable again. You know? do, you, do you feel in retrospect that if you hadn't taken that break, you might've had a better chance of like, you know, nailing or landing a next, your next job as a commercial director or is it more about just, uh, um, kind of getting back on a horse that was, um, that took you a bit of a while. Well, I feel that, that like the, the choices that I made were, were necessary for where I was in life, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I've, fortunately I've, I've been able to sort of walk the line with, with work and life and relationship. And, you know, um, when it comes to career, have one foot in, you know, the, the post industry, one foot in live action. Right. Um, a lot of people I know are all in and they're very successful because of it. Um, but for me, I think it's more important to find that balance. How um, do you do that? Just like, I know it's, it's a huge subject to dive into and I don't want to take too much of your time, but like, it sounds like, you know, you have all those different things that you are happening. So, you know, you have to, uh, you have to make money. So obviously you have still work as a motion, uh, you know, motion graphics artist and, and all that. And then you also are now writing features and this TV show that you went and you actually uh, traveled for. And then, and then you also have the, the kind of uh, your foray into commercial directing, which takes you and, and now you might be, you know, wanting to spend some time doing some spec commercials. How do you manage all of that? Like what's your, you know, it sounds like you need more than 24 hours a day to, yeah. I mean, the, the, the real difficulty is trying to find the time, you know? Um, right. and, and as we get older, time becomes more valuable and we have less of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I have a clear answer for how I do it. Um, I think I just, um, sort of have to constantly look in retrospect at, at all the things that I either want to do or have to do and try to prioritize how I can get things done. And I think, you know, a big part of that is setting deadlines and understanding what's realistic and then, you know, also like, you know, pulling the cord, um, on stuff that, you know, might be a waste of time or, you know, like there's some projects where I start them and then I realize it's, you know, it's not for now, you right. know, um, I, I shot a, 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 VR short film last summer that, um, I was really excited about and, and, um, we have amazing footage, amazing performances, but, uh, the amount of post-production involved in rendering is just daunting and it's one of those things where it's like, I got to, I got to put it on pause until I have the right the time for it. Oh, I see. You know? So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, for, for me, like, like I've always in my career, I've always been sort of a jack of all trades. I've always been like good at a lot of things, but I've never been the best at anything. And sometimes that's good for a leader, you know, right. yeah. um, or for an artist. Um, but, um, it also means that like, you know, I could have, if I would have focused in one area, I probably could have been the best at it, but that's not, that's not how my brain is wired, you know? Yeah, I know. I I totally hear you. I mean, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I feel like from, yeah, for me, it's all, it's all about finding balance. And I mean, there's always something that sort of, you know, takes the, you know, the, um, the, you know, the, the lead for a while, you know, as I mentioned for, for a while, like I was really into traveling and, you know, that was a, you know, sort of a, a journey of self-discovery as well that, you know, I spent like, almost a decade doing. And during that time, I mean, I was still working on projects and, and, you know, enjoying it, but it was never my, it, it wasn't my true passion. My, my, my real interest was, was, you know, traveling around the world. And then at a certain point, like I felt like I traveled enough and, you know, it was time to sort of settle down. 
and, you know, start a family and have buy a house and like, you know, do all these things. And so you were traveling for a decade, but you were also working at the same time, right? Yeah. I would, I would work, for, I would work a couple of projects until I could save up some money. Oh, and then, and then yeah. Oh, and then nice. when I met, when I met my wife, she also, she traveled a lot too. So she was, she had, she was bit by a similar bug. Um, so we did a lot of traveling together and, you know, that's one of the, one of the ways it worked out so well. That's great. Um, was, yeah. So, um, and, you know, still, still love to travel, but with a kid and, and, you know, like, like dogs and, and, and work and everything, it's, it's not as frequent as we'd like it to be, but, right. you know, at least we, we were able to get that, you know, like scratch that itch for, for a long time. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to let you go soon cause it's getting late and you have other things, you know, you, you, you have to pursue your dreams now. <laughs> passions don't want to be in your way uh i'm sure there's tons of things to do and not enough time um but what would you say like if if uh if you had to give yourself an advice like you know you're, you're i don't know 10 years ago or just generally like to people who are in this field who who might be similar kind of feeling like they could become best at one thing but they might you know they're, they're not it's not really for them they're more kind of like jacks of all trades and they want to maybe do something similar, which is to kind of transition from doing one thing, let's say motion design and like segue and, and rediscover themselves doing something else. Like what would be your advice? I guess. That's a great question because when, when, as I mentioned, when I got out of school, I didn't have anyone to give me that advice. And if anything, it was just people who were saying horrible things (laughs) to try to like, you know, to, to, to get me to avoid it. Um, I think what, what I would say is what I learned in 15 years now of working in post and then, you know, a couple more on top of that, just working, you know, um, as a filmmaker in general. Um, I, I had a lot of doubts along the way and I always kind of felt like either I wasn't mature enough or wasn't experienced enough or wasn't good enough to pull something off. But um, I think in sort of my discovery was realizing that like, it's the possibilities really are endless and, um, and being able to sort of like come up with something on your own and, and now bring it to fruition, like, especially on the internet, like the, the, the ability to do all these things is a lot easier now than it used to be 15 years ago. Um, it's, it's still, it's still a challenge and it's hard because now you have to filter through a lot more stuff, but, it's, it's just pretty, pretty amazing. Like what resources there are online now. Um, and that's not to say, I mean, there, there weren't resources when, when I was learning, it was just a different sort of format and there's a lot more people doing it now. Right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that it's, if there's any way to, to encourage somebody, I think it's, it's worthwhile to, even if it's not coming from me, but, but just as, as like, a, um, like a common practice, like what do you mean by, by that? Like encourage someone to, I mean, I mean that like if, if one person had just told me like, other than my parents, obviously, you know, yeah. or, or loved ones, you know, like if, if one, if like a single stranger had, had told me, you know, like to just keep, just keep going at it, like keep doing it, like whatever it is you want to do and not be like a naysayer. I think that that would have helped me push me a lot further than, than, I did because I had a lot of doubts because of it. Right. So I mean, um, it's funny because it's like in my case, my parents are you know neither of them are in the field, and they both told me not to pursue with 
this because they <laughs> thought there's nothing, you know, there's no future in it. And, uh, you know, to get a, to get a real job. But uh, I think, and that was an encouragement to me because it's like, okay, I'm going to prove them wrong now. <laughs> I'm just going to go yeah. out and do it anyway. Uh, but well, yeah. here's, here's a better way of explaining it. Like, like no matter what, if, if you are a passionate person who, who really tries hard, like there is, there is an outlet for it in one way or another. And I think that's, that's kind of what I found was it like, even if, even if I was working in the wrong industry at first or, or if I wasn't sort of hitting my mark with what I wanted to do, people notice how hard I worked and, and, you know, like eventually finding your own voice becomes something that that's your calling card. Yeah. And, and people really notice that. And like one thing that like some colleagues mentioned, like as I was, you know, creating these short films and stuff, cause it's like a lot of the stuff I was doing, I didn't have money to pay, you know, people to help out. Right. And I was curious, like, why would anyone want to waste their time helping? And, you know, they said, well, it's, it's because like they see in you this, like this drive to create something and it's really inspiring for other people. Yeah. You know, That's um, very true. And I, I think that that makes perfect sense because I was inspired by so many people as I was growing up and going through everything. So, you know, <clears throat> um, I don't know. I don't know where the industry is going to go. There's a lot of people who, who say that, like, you know, the post-production industry is on a decline mm-hmm. or that, like, budgets are getting smaller or that things are getting outsourced. All I can say is that, like, I've been able to consistently find work just because I've I've worked hard and always sort of kept relevant. You know, I still do tutorials, I still learn about stuff all the time. Um, especially, you know, like when you're like me, I'm 38 now, you know, like I'm, yeah. I'm old, I'm old in the industry. <laughs> you know, I'm like one of the, the first generations. Don't a lot say of, that. Don't say that. <laughs> but what, what, I mean, like, you know, the people before me, like they're either creative directors or they retired right. or they went somewhere else, you know, like, so to stay relevant is, is really tough. It's, it's a, you know, it's a constant, um, sort of struggle, but I, on top of that, also have all the experience that I've re- retained through all that work, you know? So, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know where the industry is going to go, but I just know that, that like, like when I work with other artists and I see like-minded people who are easy to work with and they're really passionate about it, um, maybe even if they're not even that experienced yet, but I can see the potential, I always bring them on board onto projects because, um, I can, I can see that, that drive. And that's really important because there's so many artists out there who, um, who work among us, who like are either jaded or they're lazy or they overcharge, you know, yeah. like there, there's, there's, there are a lot of those. So it's like, you know, and especially now, I mean, like there's so many people that are going to school to do exactly what we've been struggling to figure out for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, people are going to school, learning that stuff and coming out. So it's a much more flooded market. Right. So it's harder to sort of handpick, you know, the right artists. But I would say it's, it's, it's a night and day difference whenever I work with, with artists who really love what they do and who have, you know, like the right energy. Oh yeah. And it's just, you know, like you meet someone in the morning, um, that when you're working on a project and he comes back and he's like, it tells you in it with an excited voice about what they did last night, which is like, try out this new software or like test this new thing. And you, you know, you immediately get the sense that the, this person is in here, you know, in it for the right reasons. You know, they're really curious. They're really excited about technology or about storytelling, whatever part of it it is. But it's like, it's something that drives them to keep working even after hours, you know, and like keep exploring. And, and I think that's, that's, you know, just keep it interesting for yourself and for, you know, for everyone. That's the key. 
if if you if you just see it as a day job and you know you, you go home and you kind of you know don't think about it anymore it, it's it feels like you know you, you're gonna just have less to to contribute at the end of the day right um yeah it's so true i mean i think it's a great great advice uh for anyone and, and yeah definitely not to get discouraged if they don't have uh the you know the um someone telling them that they can do it i think the it, it remind when you were saying that i was just thinking about the, about it from a different angle where you know i i came from israel and i moved to the u.s uh you know nine years ago in 2009 and i remember just kind of having this sense of like okay you know who am i like these guys this is like a a hundred year old industry here you know everybody knows what they're you know what they're doing and i'm kind of like uh you know the imposter syndrome i'm like you know i don't know anything like they, they're gonna you know call my bluff immediately but then you know slowly but slowly you realize no one knows what they're doing really it's <laughs> yeah exactly well the, the other thing too i found is that um and this this is a tougher one to sort of swallow it is that the only the only person preventing me from you know doing whatever i want to do is me yeah you know oh yeah it's it, it's really just a matter of, i mean like i've got i've got all kinds of great ideas that that i could make into screenplay film whatever yeah. but it's it's on me like it's on me i just see like I, I i can't keep telling myself oh i could make that you know right like it it's just a matter of like just doing it and i think sometimes i'm just kicking my own ass to like push myself and i think deadlines again is like it like you know just personal deadlines are really important right um i mean and then just, ethan ethan uh is a guy that i i had in my podcast uh, i think he's uh uh, earlier and, and he said something really, really funny and smart. He said like, you know, when, when you're self-propelled, when you're like kind of your own creator, uh, or, or you, you're, you work as a, as an independent creator and you come up with ideas and stuff. The, the interesting thing about it is, is like, no one's waiting for you. Uh, no one's asking you to do it. So if you don't do it, no one cares. And if you, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you do it, no one cares because you're, no one's waiting for it. And if you don't do it, no one cares either. But it, sometimes if you do it and people watch it, then they get, you know, they, they notice you and, and that kind of creates change and that drives you forward. But it's really up to you. It's like, there's no, no one waiting or, or giving you a deadline or anything like that. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, and the last thing I'll ask is, you know, where can people find you online? Um, my director's site is johnrobson.tv and, um, my motion site is latelunch.tv. And late lunch is like your kind of LLC or your. Yeah, it's my corporation. Um, it, it was, it was one of these things, um, uh, early on in my career, 2005, my, my accountant was like, well, you really need to incorporate <laughs> because, uh, your, all your money's going away to taxes. Right. Cause it was another thing where like, you know, a lot of us freelancers were trying to figure out what exactly we're supposed to do because we're 1099ing right. and we're losing like 30 or 40% of our paychecks to tax. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, I had, I had a, like a, a pretty quick deadline to come up with the company name and I was, um, I was sitting with, uh, working with Penny Niederlander, the, um, the one who I worked on, uh, those, the friendly fire stuff with the Sean, Sean Lennon yeah. thing. Um, and, uh, uh, one of us made a comment about, like we were just going to lunch cause we were working so hard throughout the day and it was like four o'clock. Yeah. I think I said like, it's another late lunch. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's like that perfectly embodies like <laughs> the sort of like, um, the, the, this, the sort of the passion right. that, that we have that we, we overlook like the necessities totally. of like things 
eating, you know, working so hard. So it's kind of a reminder of my, of my early days. Oh yeah. You know? yeah that totally make, I mean, early days I, I'm having late lunches every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I try to get better with that stuff, but you know, you can only, uh, c- control your fate so much. Great name. And do you have like a Twitter account or, or, uh, yeah, Twitter is, I am John Robson. Uh, I think late lunch was taken. <laughs> um, otherwise like, like Instagram is late lunch as well. Um, cool. It's funny. I guess there's like a there's like a sock company called Late Lunch that that like keeps harassing that's me to try funny. to give it. Yeah, that that's what you discovered kind of accidentally. I have uh, yeah. opened an LLC for my kind of the same thing. I called it Outpost. Uh, I knew it was probably taken, and I and when I looked it up online, I realized there's no Outpost in LA right now. Uh, oh well, Outpost VFX. But there is one that's a pretty big one in uh, in England. That's uh, uh-huh. yeah, and I you know I mean people. Somehow, sometimes people reach out to me, and I'm like immediately, I'm like, you know, I'm not that outpost. I'm, you know, I'm a freelancer. <laughs> I have, you know, uh, I contract people and stuff, but it's like it's not. This is not probably the outpost you guys are looking for. Uh, <laughs> but it's like I have outpostvfx.com, and they have outpostvfx.co.uk, uh, and I'm sure they're. Oh, wow. I'm sure if they could, they would like you know, snatch my. Yeah. They haven't made like an offer for it. They haven't. No, I'm surprised. I'm I'm oh, waiting wow. for it every day. I mean, but they haven't. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's funny. It's like you know, I wouldn't have known otherwise. So you have a socks. Right. At least you're 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 not you're not, you're not really competing with any like you know you're not you're not going to create socks now that you're gonna. Uh, I mean, they they've got a lot of followers for their socks, so <laughs> and they're doing pretty well. Maybe you can collaborate with them and like, you know, offer, you know, VFX or, you know, motion graphics and and socks. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's really, it's getting late. People don't realize that we're talking, you know, uh, in the the hours of the night, uh, almost. But uh, Uh, Pleasure was all mine. I'm happy to talk about things. And, you know, it's also, it's been a while since I've sort of reflected on, on a lot of that stuff. So it's cool to sort of, you know look back at the past and you know yeah no i really appreciate it thanks yeah no problem that was it episode 14 of the post post podcast i hope you guys enjoyed it stay tuned next time we have tyson ibell who is uh someone that I've been following for many, many years. I'm very excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, We'll see you soon.